Well, um, there are things in life that um, I think we are afforded that don't feel like a gift. There are reminders in our lives of things that we would rather ignore and not face. And yet, if we're honest, over time, they actually work out to be a blessing. There are these moments that we would just as soon not have to face, confront, deal with. But if we look back, maybe we can be honest enough to say, I would never want to go through that again. But man, that was good. To which I would say, God is in the midst of all of it. God is a redeeming God. And even though we face hardship, even though we face struggle, that doesn't have to be the final story on the matter. And so um, I like to think about it this way. Sometimes when we hear Christ's story, we hear Christ's story, we read Christ's story as Christ's story. Um, we read it as his and his alone. Um, but the problem with that is, is that um, we tend to look at that as it something done for us, maybe on our behalf, maybe to be an inspiration to us, maybe to be an encouragement to us. Um, but the problem is, is that since Christ lived, Christ's story, when we accept Christ into our life, becomes our story. It's not just something going on over there in his life unfolding. Oh, that's too bad for him. Thanks for doing that for me. No, when we invite Christ into our life, his story then becomes our story. And there's a huge difference between our understanding of that and our living of that. Because Christ's story is something that we're called to live into when he, in fact, lives in us. Paul was writing to the church at Colossae, and he had these words to say out of the book of Colossians, and he said, I am glad when I suffer. Colossians is one of what we call the prison letters. He's writing from jail, but he's giving this commentary. When I suffer for you in my body, I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. In other words, that to come to Christ does not mean that we get the path of least resistance. So God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you, you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his sharing his glory let's talk let me illustrate it this way i imagine that there are more than a few of us in here that are passionate about sports sports have a way of becoming emotional uh, when we root for teams maybe it's sentimental because that's where we grew up maybe it's sentimental because that's where we went to school um, maybe they were real formative in our childhood maybe we have a lot of money on the line for whatever reason, we have a way of getting drawn in to sports. Maybe you're married into a sports family. Maybe you're dating someone that 
is into a sports family. Either way, sports have a way of changing someone in a relationship, do they not? And so there are times when people are known to yell at the screen, which is only an inanimate object. There are people who are known to don the jerseys and spend way too much money on sports paraphernalia representing their team and wearing the right colors and not wearing the wrong colors because we get passionate about our sports. Last week, there was a significant game that was played. I had a lot of interest in a particular basketball game, and here's the thing. It didn't go my way. We watched all season long. We, we would build our vacation around when the Warriors were playing. It did not come out our way for our team. This was supposed to be the team of destiny. This was supposed to be the team that had set the, the record for 73 win season, which means nothing if you don't win the championship. And so the LeBron Cavaliers came out victorious, to which we could not celebrate at all. In fact, we were with people who were glad that the Cavaliers won, to which I thought, what is wrong with you? And I went to bed on Sunday night, and I had a good night's sleep. Admittedly, I avoided my normal websites on Monday morning, but by Tuesday morning, all of the conversation had shifted away from what happened in the championship game to what the draft was going to be like in just a few weeks or in a few days. We have a way of living vicariously through all of these players. We wear the right colors. We wear the right number. We cheer for the right team. We cheer for the losing team. We have a way of vicariously. But when the game's over, we can either change the channel, turn it off, commiserate with friends but the next morning I got up and it was just business as usual I wasn't married to the game I didn't play in the game I didn't have to console anyone I don't know any of the players who played to feel bad for them personally like I need to put on my pastoral hat and console them what we do with sports is completely vicarious and what my concern with our faith is we live vicariously through the gospel the same way is that we think that Christ died so therefore I don't need to die Christ forgave so I don't actually have to forgive Christ healed so I don't heal but that's not the gospel the gospel is what lives inside of me because if Christ lives in me then I became in him righteousness in him, an overcomer. In him, part of the restoration of all things. In him, a healer. In him, a comforter. Because if Christ's story is my story, because Christ's life is now in my life, that changes everything. Over the next few weeks, I want to look through the book of John. I don't know how many of you have read the book of John. He writes very interestingly, and over the next few weeks, I'll talk about John's writing. John makes about seven or so statements, I am statements. They're self-defining statements that, if they're true, change everything. They're actually bigger proclamations than him just simply being, hey, I'm the Messiah. It's him saying, I am changes the way I am. Because of who Christ is, 
changes my identity. Because if all Christ does for us is change our behavior, we've missed the gospel. The good news of the gospel message is that his life is now in me, and that has the power over time to be transformational and impactful. So um, I want to encourage you to take notes. We've got some uh, places to mark up on your bulletins, and I want to look at a couple of passages in Scripture tonight. We're going to go through the book of John. Um, One of the things uh, that I'll say just in highlight is um, there was this... um, movie that came out several years ago with Mel Gibson called We Were Soldiers. I don't know if you remember this story. It's a powerful scene. Mel Gibson plays the role of this commanding officer who's fighting a war in Vietnam and they take this hillside and and they all get dropped off. This whole, uh, I don't know uh, if it's a battalion or battalion, but it's a whole crew of of soldiers that go in and they're fighting on this hillside um, all day and it goes into the night and it starts to go all night. And um, they, they can't get reinforcements set in. They get cut off from each other. They're trying to hold their position while they're trying to advance. And, and the whole thing is, is just fraught with tension um, and it's relentless. There's this one journalist who gets dropped off and, and all he shows up with, but the journalist is a soldier. He's in fatigues, but he refuses to carry an arm, um, to arm himself. And so in this battle, he shows up with a camera. And Mel Gibson's character is just asking him, what's your story? And he talks about the lineage that he came from, that his dad was in the war before him and his grandfather was in the war and his father was in the war him and his, before him. And he thought, I just thought I would try and understand this war from a different angle. And so he didn't pick up a rifle. He picked up the camera lens and was trying to tell a different story, except the later he got in the battle, the more the night unfolded, the more the enemy kept encroaching. He had to abandon the camera and take up arms. No longer was he able to just sit on the sidelines and somehow take pictures and go write a really compelling story of what the Vietnam conflict was all about. He actually began to have to take up arms and fight the enemy for his own life. The gospel is the same way. Christ invites us out of the stands and onto the field because that's where the battle is. To be not just in the arena, uh, not in the arena, but not just in the stands. And um, I would say it this way, when we're in the arena, when we're on the field, we're a lot less likely to complain and argue with one another, but we'll be more concerned with embodying and living the Christian life. So, John chapter 11, we're introduced to a statement. Jesus is a couple of days late, four to be exact, for a funeral, a funeral of his best friends. You've got Mary and Martha, sisters, with their brother Lazarus, who has died, except that Jesus was told that he was deathly ill and Jesus never in a hurry, which is super convicting, never overbooked, doesn't show up on time. It's four days, not three. Three would be the scientific determination that this life was actually dead. So four days is a a way of saying he was dead as a doornail. He ain't coming back. And so Jesus shows up on the fourth day to which he, as he's approaching 
Bethany. Well, let's just go ahead and read it here. He says he finally got there and he found Lazarus already four days dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple of miles away, and many of the Jews were visiting Martha and Mary because you never were supposed to go through pain and loss alone because loss and grieving was communal. That when I hurt, you hurt. When you hurt, I hurt. This was a part of the culture, of the, of the Hebraic culture, that they would come and mourn and wail so that you weren't trying to just act like you were fine. No, I'm good. I'm fine. No, really. Let me busy myself so I don't have to deal with my pain. So the community had gathered around. Martha heard Jesus was coming and went to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask God, he will give you. Jesus said, your brother will be raised up. Martha replied, I know, I know. Bless your heart. That he will be raised up in the end of the resurrection at the end of all time, like we all will. Thanks for sharing. I already know that. To which he says, you don't have to wait for the end, Martha. I am right now resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. See, every day there's something that confronts us that might feel insurmountable. Every day we're confronted with something that feels overwhelming. Every day we're confronted with something that minimally feels draining. Every day we're confronted with, that, with something that feels potentially harmful or sick. And Jesus' words, then and now, is that I am the resurrection and the life. And so what we're going to see unfold is Jesus, not just his sorrow, but his anger for the world in which God actually created and intended. So resurrection, as we've been talking about for the last several weeks since Easter, is the pursuit of a new normal. Well, what's a new normal? New normal is when we're able to recalibrate or resensitize our hearts because given up to our own devices, we let our hearts get so calloused, so desensitized, that we don't, don't get to experience new life. And yet Christ comes and says, I am the resurrection and the life. So if he lives in us, there's something about being made new. So he can come in and what has been callous can be made soft. Can, what is, what is kind of broken and brittle and fret can be made supple. It can be made new. That's what we've been talking about through the new normal. Martha saw Jesus and thought it was over. Jesus sees a chance to begin again. She sees him as late. He sees it as opportunistic because it was no coincidence that he shows up on the fourth day. Martha feels the loss and the despair. Jesus feels the compassion and the hope. She's been crying. So does he. She feels without resource. Jesus feels full of the Holy Spirit. And so are we in every case. When Christ comes to dwell in us, we receive a new identity. And I'll talk about that in a minute. 
But when Christ dwells in us, we also receive the Holy Spirit of God. That is the same spirit that raised Christ from the grave is the same power that we have to overcome that which feels insurmountable. You just missed a really good chance to say amen. I'm just saying, just want to make sure you're with me on this. Let's read what the reaction is to Jesus, because I think it's really curious to me. Mary came to him, Mary, the one who stayed behind in the house, uh, to where Jesus was waiting, fell at his feet. Master, if only you had been here. He's heard this story before. The sisters had been corroborating their story. Boy, why didn't Jesus get here? I thought he was our best friend. My brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews were sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. And he said, where did you put him? Master, come, uh, come and see. They said, now Jesus wept. And the Jews said, look how deeply he loved him. If you were a kid who grew up in Sunday school, you knew John 11.35. You knew John 3.16, but you knew John 11.35 because if there was any compensation with Bible memory, you knew the shortest verse in the Bible that Jesus wept (laughs) because you had to get some star or quarter or whatever candy that was available for knowing that Jesus wept. The big question is, is when we understand why was Jesus weeping? Was it just like, oh shoot, I'm so sorry, I was so busy. I'm sorry, I, I missed my chance. No, it says that he was angry. And when you start to explore the original language, it was that an, a, a kind of tearfulness that came out, or a kind of anger that came out in tears. Now, some of you would say, sometimes we cry because I'm sad. Sometimes we cry because I'm full of joy. Sometimes we cry because we're just fuming mad. Jesus is angry and sad. Why? Because this was not the world that God actually intended for us. Death was never supposed to be a part of the human experience. Can I say that again? Death was never supposed to be a part of the human experience. When we read Revelation, we understand the world that God is going to restore. There's no more death and there's no more sorrow. There's no more pain. There's no more loss. That's what was created in the garden. That's what got interrupted by sin. So when he's experiencing this, he's mad at the sin that has broken the world into pieces. He's like, this is not supposed to be a part of the human condition. And so he came to conquer death. And so I would say it this way, that the longing that each of us, the longing that you have for justice, the longing that you have for peace, the longing that you have for quality of life, hopefully not just your own, but the quality of life for another, that other people should be entitled to clean drinking water. Other people should be entitled to just basic health care or shelter. That's rooted in God's design. Jesus wept implies that he enters into our struggles, our loss, our pain, our suffering, and God does not sit at a distance idly by. Jesus wept means that he enters into everything that you and I feel about what is wrong with this election or what is wrong with this world. He's like, this is not what we created in the beginning. And so the longing for God to be present is there for a reason. And each of you, I believe, have that longing. 
if you've ever felt injustice, if you've ever felt pain, if you've ever felt loss, if you've ever felt the distance of God or a relationship, I'm saying that longing is there for a reason. God calls his people to new life and to participate with his restoration and his redemption. This week, um, a few of us had a chance as we solidified a relationship through Austin Angels with a young couple living in South Austin. Justin and Elizabeth and Connie and I sat in the living room this week because the South Tribe is going to begin this partnership with this family. Now, let me just clarify this family. I, I have to be a little vague because there's some confidentiality with some of the legal arrangements, but there's a young couple engaged. They live in about a, I would guess, a three-bedroom, maybe 1,500, 1,600-square-foot home. They have a great dame that is a puppy, and I use that term relative because it's a small horse. And two months ago, uh, let me back up, this gentleman um, has a background in law enforcement. He has a background in seeing the abuse and what's wrong with the world. And he was particularly, had a particularly close relationship to uh, a lady who was in um, managing foster care for five children. As he began to observe this relationship deteriorate, what he saw became unsafe and unfit for the foster kids. And it was now at the point of abuse. But rather than turning a blind eye, rather than calling just the authorities, he felt like he needed to step in. And because of the relationship he had already built, it was advantageous. So he did. He's getting married in like two months. What is, and, and their home doesn't reflect anything of parents. It's clean. It's orderly. There's no baskets. There's no tykes, little trikes. There's there, nothing that would say, we're parents in this home. But two months ago, three of the five came to live with them. Right now, they're four, seven, and 15. There's a 14-year-old that's going to be coming back soon, and there's a nine-year-old that will probably stay in institutional care. But they are committed to raising these kids as their own. And what was so inspiring about his longing to see justice served was that it wasn't just for the protection of the kids, it was for the love of the kids. And to see him, because we were there past bedtime, we stayed there for like two hours, because they didn't seem in any hurry to go, and we kind of kept suggesting that it was getting late. But it was the kids were going to bed, the 15-year-old. None of these kids are siblings, but they've become the only family they know. The little four-year-old boy doesn't have a concept of who is dad. He refers to this because he's had so many. He's had so many moms. And so he refers to the guy taking care of him now as his uncle who's his dad because the concept or title of dad and uncle mean the same thing. But to see the dad figure now trying to put his now new son to bed and speaking the words, I love you so much. Not just that they need a safe place or someone needs to fix the education system. It's come be family. And I would say, I'm sitting here reading, you know, this passage thinking, I'm the resurrection and the life. And I don't know this gentleman's faith story. I don't know if Christ lives in him, except that I would say it this way, that the longing that we all feel for justice, or when we stare at things and get a little bit angry thinking, this is not right, is rooted in the heart of God. 
So I want to talk to you about those of you who have said yes to Christ, pledged your allegiance, and see yourselves as citizens of a heavenly kingdom who happen to just simply be living on earth. The New Testament writers had a really interesting way about communicating your new identity. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 um, Corinthians 5.17, he says, Behold, in Christ, it's a key phrase you read throughout the New Testament, in Christ, you're a new creation. The Greek word for that would be a new species. No one like you. No one before, no one ever after. You are a new species in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. What Paul is writing about is this idea that when we say yes to Christ, we have a new identity. And so the New Testament writers, like Paul, speak to us in terms of you are the righteousness in Christ. You are renewed. You are part of God's restoration. You are a royal priesthood. Yeah, I know you're an accountant by day. I know that you're a developer by day. I know that you're an engineer by day. I know that you're a manager by day. But you're a royal priesthood in the kingdom of God. Is that how you see yourself each morning? Because that's exactly how our Heavenly Father sees us. Now, most times, let me just, I, I, I don't want to lose you on this because this was really interesting as I started to think. Most times, I think, as we begin to grow, we sort of get pushed from behind. We get pushed ahead from our regrets, our mistakes, sort of the shame in our lives. And we're always trying to grow, but never seeming to forget who we were or, or the poor choices we made. To which I would say, our past only describes us. It should not define us. Our past regrets, our past mistakes, our former life only describes chapters. It should not, at least in God's eyes, define who we are. The New Testament writers believe that if people keep learning who they are, they'll at least figure out what to do. And so Paul, when you read his writings to the Corinthians, to the Colossians, to the Philippians, to the uh, Ephesians, whenever you read Paul's writing, Paul describes people as saints, not sinners, and yet he describes himself as chief of sinners. But he says, that's not who I am. And so when you're firmly grounded in Christ, and I'll just close with this, when you are firmly grounded in Christ as a new creation, you're now free to deal with all of your sin because your identity and your worth are not in question. It's being able to come clean because acceptance is already a done deal. Over the next several weeks, I want to look at the I am statements of God because when Jesus says, I am this, it changes who I am. And if you're in Christ, which is an identity statement, you have a new identity that you can walk into that feels liberating. So who he is changes who we are when we say yes to him. I want to do this. I want to close in prayer, but I want you to pray. So I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want you to listen to the sound of my voice. 
And I want to just allow room for the Holy Spirit. We don't have much time left. We're, we're just about done here tonight. But I just want to say this to you. As we talk about our identity in Christ, and we talk about Christ as, in fact, the resurrection and the life, I would just simply ask, what situation or condition in your life might you sense that God is asking you to turn? Turn away from? Turn towards? Is there a situation that feels like you need to make a turn? It's just not life-giving. It's not honoring. It's become a wedge. It's a source of shame. Whatever it is. Difficult relationship. Whatever. Just name it. Pray about it. Now I would just ask you this question. What situation, what person needs life? What person do you know that needs resurrection, that needs a new normal? Maybe that's financially. Maybe that's within marriage. Maybe that's spiritually. Maybe that's physically, relationally. Father, I believe that your Holy Spirit is active and moving. I think you uh, bring a spirit of revelation upon us. I pray that you would bring a spirit of agreement on us as we begin to walk into the identity of resurrection and life. That the power, the, the same spirit that raised um, your son from the grave is the same spirit that resides in us and we can be agents of healing, forgiveness, and justice we can be part of your restoration and your redemption. So I pray that you would just speak to our hearts and our minds about the condition of our own hearts, but also the influence we have with others. And that you would come and fill us with the light of day. That you would come and fill us with your hope and your resurrection. That we might be people of hope and of justice and of mercy. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus.